Okay, uh, take your Bible and turn to Job chapter 42. Um, someone was asking me, is this the last message today? Um, we're going to actually get to the end of the text, but I like to think of this as, as the low approach, you know, the, the fast uh, flyby before we actually come around to land the airplane one more time. So um, let's look at Job 42 and uh, let's... Uh, Let's watch how the story ends. Um, we have watched this man, this righteous man. Um, no one like him in the East, according to chapter 1. Um, no one more prosperous as he, according to the first couple of chapters. We've seen uh, Satan enter the picture. God calls Satan's attention to his servant Job, and Satan takes advantage of that opportunity. Um, uh, he makes, as it were, a wager with God that the only reason that Job and others like him would ever worship a God is because of God's blessings in his life and challenges God that if God were to remove those blessings, that nobody would worship him, that God is not worthy of worship unless there are benefits involved. Um, well, you know how the story goes. We see Job endure um, two rounds of excruciating and amazing suffering. Um, we see him upholding God's name, praising God's name, blessing God's name, even in the midst of uh, his wife and others that have encouraged him to do otherwise. And then we get into this long, drawn-out dialogue section where these three friends come supposedly to encourage him, and they end up almost pushing him off the cliff of faith. Uh, as they attack uh, Job, that there must be some hidden sin in his life that God is uh, punishing him for. And as Job continues to maintain his innocence, well, in the midst of that, his, shift, his faith shifts from a faith in the Lord to a faith in his own righteousness, ultimately getting to a place where he accuses God of being unjust and unrighteous, wanting to take God to court, as it were, and to lay out the evidence and to show everybody that he really is in the right and God is in the wrong. And that finally culminates in a theophany, God actually revealing himself in some sort of uh, visual way to Job, uh, where he reminds Job in very, very straight terms that he alone is God uh, and Job is not. Um, and Job, as we saw last time, has repented. He has uh, responded rightly to God's admonition and rebuke. And Job is now back in the place where he is humbly submitting to and trusting in his God again. But that's not the end of the story. So please take your Bible, look at Job chapter 42, and uh, let's read the end of the story. Look at verse 7. And it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now therefore take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job will pray for you. For I will accept him so that I may not do with you according to your folly, because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. 
So Eliphaz, the Temanite, and Bildad, the Shuhite, and Zophar, the Namathite, went and did as the Lord told them, and the Lord accepted Job. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. Then all his brothers and all his sisters and all who had known him before came to him, and they ate bread with him in his house, and they consoled him and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought on him. And each one gave him one piece of money and each a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and a 1,000 yoke of oxen and a 1,000 female donkeys. And he had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jemiah and the second Keziah and the third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters And their father gave them an inheritance amongst their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his grandsons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. Um, Let's uh, let's jump into this here and uh, let's uh, let's look at what I'm going to call the epilogue section here of the book of Job. We see, first of all, that God is going to respond, God's response to the three friends. God is going to respond now. Um, he's, uh, re- he's revealed himself, first of all, in order to rebuke Job. And it's interesting that um, all the focus is on Job being corrected. Well, now it comes time for the three friends, and God actually has very little to say to the friends. In fact, he doesn't even address the friends at all. He goes to Job and tells Job, well, my wrath is kindled against the friends. And Job, as it were, is the spokesperson for God to the friends. And that, that, that sets the stage for a very interesting series of events that are going to happen here. The first thing we see is that God's wrath is kindled because, quote, you have not spoken of me what is right. Um, it says here, my wrath is kindled. I'm sorry, I guess he does, talk, uh, he does speak to Eliphaz there. Later on, he uses Job. Uh, my wrath is kindled against you. That word you there is singular. He's talking to Eliphaz and against your two friends because you, now the second you there is plural, okay? Um, that's y'all, okay? You guys, where I'm from. Um, he starts off talking to Eliphaz, but really he, the application of what he's going to say applies to all three, to Zophar and Bildad also. Why is God's wrath kindled? Why is his righteous uh, anger ignited against these three guys? It says there, because you have not spoken of me what is right. Um, that's a direct reference to the retributive theology, the, uh, the things that we've seen all throughout the course of the book, the, the vending machine view of God where you do what's right and God blesses you, you do what's wrong and he punishes you, uh, this simplistic explanation for why things happen the way that they do. And um, God is not happy about that. Uh, they have misrepresented God. And, and just, just as a footnote here, um, it's a big deal to misrepresent, uh, misrepresent the character of God. This book, I've told you guys are probably sick of hearing me say this, this book is about the character of God. It's about correcting some false views that were popular in Job's day about who God is and why he does what he does. And we see here that, that to make 
mistakes about the character of God are not small things. They are things that incur the wrath and anger of God. And not only that, not only have they misrepresented God, um, but they have misrepresented God in such a way that they almost, they almost pushed Job to the point of denying God himself. So his wrath is kindled against the friends because of their retributive theology. I just, a couple of quotes here from, from, uh, days and weeks past in reading this. Uh, remember this retributive theology? Um, Elihu, if you look back, uh, I will have you look there. Just flip back to chapter 32 for a minute. When Elihu steps on the scene, remember, Elihu is the John the Baptist of Job. He's the one who comes and prepares the way for God to step in and for him to have his time with Job. But, but Elihu sets the table for that. He, he gets everybody ready for God coming and speaking. And remember, because the narrator is speaking in chapter 32 as Elihu comes, we know that the narrator is giving a right view. The narrator is giving God's view, if you will, on the whole book. And it says here in chapter 32 that the reason that, um, Elihu was so upset at these guys is because according to verse 3, uh, the friends had condemned Job but had found no answer. That's helpful because that shows us that from God's perspective, their condemnation of Job was wrong and the fact that they couldn't give a good answer to Job for why all of this happening was likewise wrong. Um, so we see that. They, they found no answer, yet they had condemned Job. That, that's why... God's wrath and punishment is, is kindled in this case. And you'll remember back in chapter 22, I think this was Bildad said this to Job. Job, if you return to the Almighty, you will be restored. The, the, the friends basically had two things they wanted to say to Job throughout the whole book. The first one is, Job, the reason you're suffering is because of sin in your life. And they say that dozens of ways throughout dozens of chapters in the book. But the second thing that they say, and this is, this is actually a little more dangerous even than the fact that they were condemning Job for something he didn't do, is that they were calling Job to turn to God, to, to go back to God, but in order that his prosperity might be restored. Now, why is that more dangerous than even their retributive theology? Okay, that's right. They were, they were encouraging him to turn back for the wrong reason. What does that sound like? Turn to God so that he'll bless you again. What's, what, yeah, it's health and wealth. It's what? That's prosperity, which is the whole argument of which character in the book? Satan. Satan was the one saying, well, the only reason that Job is, is worshiping you is because you're blessing him. And do you see how dangerously close the friends come to agreeing with Satan's theology? Job, the reason this is happening in your life is because um, there's some sin in your life that you're not admitting God's punishing you. All, you. all you have to do, Job, is turn back to God and admit that, and he'll bless you. He's a vending machine, right? Just turn back to him, and he'll bless you. He, he's, he's right back uh, to where they were, and dangerously close to what Satan was saying that the reason we should seek God is because he's going to bless you. 
So that's not a good place. And we see, do you see why God's wrath is kindled over that? They're very, very close to where Satan was. That's not why we worship God. That's not, uh, God is worthy of our worship because of who he is, not because of the blessings that he gives us. Um, there's a wonderful quote here by D.A. Carson. Um, uh, Terry, you may remember who said this. I can't remember who it was, but um, D.A. Carson is a longtime professor of New Testament up at uh, Trinity Seminary in uh, Deerfield, Illinois. And uh, someone said, one, one of our friends said, one of the you know, Shepherd's Conference guys, that basically if Carson has written it, buy it, because he's that, he's that reliable. Listen to what Carson says about this section of uh, why, why the friends are rebuked. Although they, meaning the friends, are trying to defend God, their reductionistic theology ends up offering Job a temptation to confess sins that weren't there in order to try to retrieve his prosperity. If Job has, had succumbed, it would have meant that Job cared more for prosperity than for his integrity or for the Lord himself. And this is interesting, Carson says this, and the Lord would have lost his wager with Satan. Their counsel, if followed, would have actually led Job away from the Lord, and Job would have been reduced to being yet one more person interested in seeking God for merely personal gain. Sure. It says, although they are trying to defend God, their reductionistic theology ends up offering Job a temptation to confess sins that weren't there in order to try to retrieve his, pros- his prosperity. I'll just read the whole thing again. If Job, Job had succumbed, it would have meant that Job cared more for prosperity than for his integrity or for the Lord himself, and the Lord would have lost his wager. Their counsel, if followed, would have actually led Job away from the Lord Job would have been reduced to yet one more person interested in seeking God for merely personal gain. Okay, That's why God's wrath is kindled. Because that strikes at the heart of both who God is and why we worship. It, it's, it's, they, they came dangerously close to buying into what Satan was uh, telling them to do. Okay, so God's response to the friends. Another footnote here, um, we're going to be held accountable for how we encourage others. I mean, these three guys, they love Job. They travel this great distance to sit with him for day upon day, probably week after week, trying to encourage him. And what's the end result? God gets angry at them. Okay? You say, man, that's kind of harsh, you know. I mean, their heart was in the right place, right? And, and God's okay as long as our heart's in the right place, right? No. God does care about our heart, and He does care about our motive. But I want you to see here that we will be held accountable for how we encourage other people. And if we encourage other people along theological lines that are wrong, we will be held accountable for that. Um, the ministry of encouragement, especially to those that are suffering, is an essential ministry of the local church, isn't it? We're told to weep with those who weep. We're, we're told to walk down a road with somebody that's suffering as long as we need to walk down that road. Uh, we're called to, to encourage the faint-hearted, to help the weak, 
to be patient, even in the midst of that being a very, very long, chronic type of thing. But at the same time, we need to be very, very careful that our counsel and our words and our advice are honoring to God. Um, many of you have said that after we, after we read this book, I mean, you're almost fearful to say anything to anybody that's suffering, right? Because you don't, you don't want to mess it up. We can't do that. We need to be the body of Christ and encourage one another that are suffering. At the same time, we need to be very careful to make sure that our counsel is biblical and right. Um, misrepresenting the character of God, even though we're trying to do something nice for somebody, maybe to help them feel better. Um, we know how God thinks about that now. Um, so I think there's a warning there for us as we, as we read these verses together. The second thing I want you to see is that Job is commended for speaking what is right about God. And I think that one verse is part of the reason that many commentators, can I say this, misunderstand the whole book. They take the one verse that Job is commended at the end and they let that color everything else in the book to, to the detriment of good exegesis and interpretation. Um, I, I've argued all along, and, and I, hope, I hope that you agree with me, I, I don't know how else to read Job, that though Job is a righteous man, though his faith is in God, though he has a better theology than the friends when it comes to uh, why the suffering is happening, he nonetheless, in, in the chronic nature, in the ongoing grind of the suffering, he, he turns away from God and he begins to accuse God, so much so that at the end of the book, he is actually contending with God, justifying himself and condemning God. Um, th- those are things we cannot say are, are okay. I mean, clearly those things are wrong, and, and obviously God rebukes him. So, so that was not a good thing that he was engaged in. So if that's true then, how do we understand this verse? So look back at the text there. It says, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, because you have not spoken to me what is right, as my servant Job has. And if that's not enough, he says it again in the next verse. Look at the end of verse 8. He says, um, you have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. So what has Job said that is right? Clearly God accusing him, or excuse, excuse me, clearly Job accusing God of being unjust. That's not what we're talking about here. We know that he was clearly out of bounds with that. We know that contending with God was not right. We know that arguing with God was not right. We know the times when he was relying on self-righteousness and, and condemning God's actions. We know that that's not right. So, so what is he talking about here? Well, we have a couple of possibilities, and, and maybe it's both. The first thing is Job's initial response to the trial. Do we remember that at all? Do we, do we remember way, way back at the beginning of all this? When Satan begins to bring these um, tremendous tragedies to his life, the, the loss of his property, the loss of his animals, the loss of his livelihood, the loss of his family, his ten precious children, and finally the loss of his health. In the midst of that, Job blesses God. 
And the narrator tells us in both of those situations, Job didn't sin. So it could be that when when Job says in chapter 1, the Lord gave, the Lord took away, blessed be the name of the Lord. That could be what, what God is referring to here. Okay. Now that makes sense because when Job repented, his fellowship with God was restored. Um, he was forgiven of you know, the unjust accusations and contending and all that. Uh, and in the midst of all that, we see, we see a, a godly, faithful man who strayed into sin, who did what godly people do when they stray into a sin. They repent. They're restored to that fellowship. And God says, what he said is right. That you, you worship God. You continue to worship him whether he gives or whether he takes away. You continue to worship and bless God and accept his wise, fatherly disposal, whether or not it's a good thing in your eyes or whether it's a bad thing in your eyes. So it could be that when it says there, uh, the thing that Job spoke that was right, that he could be referring back to the first couple of chapters there and Job's initial responses to the trial. It's interesting because, um, and, and again, this is totally reading between the lines, so, so take this with a grain of salt, but the friends never experienced that. The friends weren't present when Job said those things. Remember that? The friends hadn't showed up yet in chapter 1 and chapter 2 when, when Job is blessing God in the midst of his trial. In fact, Job was doing pretty good till the friends showed up. Right? So So this could be... God's way of saying, you know, Job, Job was doing okay. He was saying what is right until you guys showed up and started giving him all this bad theology. I don't know. That's speculation, but that's a possibility. Another possibility is that what God is talking about is not so much Job's responses at the beginning of the book, but in the context, the fact that when God rebukes him and calls him to repentance, he does repent. And remember remember what he said. He says in verse 42, I know you can do all things. I know no purpose of yours can be thwarted. I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes seize you. Therefore I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. That is truth. That's right. That he gets it. Remember, we talked about this last time. He sees now. He, he's understanding all of this in the right way. And it may be that God is saying, as the friends are standing by watching this, see, Job gets it now. He sees it. Did the friends repent? No. I mean, they're watching all this. They're hearing all this. They're seeing all this as far as we can tell. We don't see any response from the friends. So God says to them, hey, You've not spoken what is right, but my servant Job has, referring to his immediate words in his repentance in the context of chapter 42. So either one of those could be what God is talking about. Uh, perhaps he's talking about both. I, I don't know which one is right, but, but the point is Job is commended for speaking what is right about God. It's interesting. One of the commentators, uh, Wilson, um, I really appreciate um, how he handles this whole end section here. He said this, God affirms Job's words, but he never validates Job's claims of righteousness. Righteousness in the context of what Wilson is talking about is where he's def- where Job is defending his innocence. Okay? So, 
God, God is very clear that he's affirming what Job says, but he's not saying how Job has behaved is right. He's not vindicating Job of those things. So, and I think that's helpful to keep in mind um, in the context of what we're saying here. Now, uh, Job's response, response to the three, three friends continues. This is interesting. This is really interesting. And this is... You know, I, I guess a, a good ending to a book is one you could never figure out yourself, right? You know, we never would have seen this coming. Job becomes the intercessor or the mediator between the friends and God, offering an atoning sacrifice for their sin. Did you catch that? I mean, look back, look what it says here. Uh, he tells the friends, take for yourselves seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job. Okay? And offer up burnt offerings for yourselves, and my servant Job will pray for you. That, it's interesting. That little word pray, is, what does your Bible say? Does it say pray? Not the normal word for prayer, okay? It, it's got, it, it does mean prayer, but it's, okay, here, here's prayer. In, in the normal word prayer is, is prayer, talking to God. And then you have all these little words that are narrower definitions of prayer, okay? More specific types of prayer. And that's what we have here. The word translated prayer here in our Bibles is a specific type of prayer, and it means to act as an arbitrator, an intercessor, or an advocate. Interesting. So God tells the three friends, take the animals, go to Job, and Job is going to be your your intercessor. He's going to be your advocate. He's going to be the go-between, the mediator. And, and this, this is, I love this, this is great. Look at verse 8. For I will accept him, I'll accept Job, so that I may not do with you according to your folly. So Job becomes the mediator and God says, I will accept what Job does. You ready? On your behalf. Interesting. Accept a Job means either to accept his prayer or accept Job's position as a mediator, intercessor. Uh, literally, uh, the, the Hebrew says um, that word accept literally is to lift up the face. And that usually has the idea of showing regard or respect for somebody or, or to accept them. And uh, it's a, one of the Hebrew idioms there. So it, it, the idea is Job's going to go pray, he's going to intercede, and God is going to have regard for Job in that role. He's going to accept Job as the mediator, as the intercessor for the three friends. Which is interesting because it shows us that Job's role as the, or, I'm sorry, Job's role as the mediator shows that God accepted Job's repentance and restored fellowship with him. Job's obedience also shows us that his repentance included the acquisition of a merciful and gracious heart toward his friends. So, so there's two things that this shows us. The first thing that shows us is that God, when Job repented, God accepted Job's repentance and restored his fellowship. Obviously, because he's allowing Job to be the mediator now, right? But the other thing it shows us, do you remember just a couple chapters ago what Job was calling these friends? 
You're sorry comforters. You're sorry encouragers. You're terrible friends. You're this, you're that. And there's this name calling. Remember how sarcastic Job was toward the friends? Well, somewhere in the midst of his repentance, Job's heart changed toward his friends. Because he doesn't think twice about obeying God. And he goes and he intercedes for the friends. Notice also the repeated phrases. Um, repeated phrases, in, especially in Hebrew narrative, are very, very helpful. They're, they're usually things you want to clue into. You have not spoken to me what is right as my servant Job has. That occurs twice. And we, we emphasize that. But did you catch the other thing that's repeated? What's the other thing that... Don't look at your notes. Look up. What's the other thing that's repeated? What is it? My servant Job, four times. When's the last time we've, God has called Job his servant? Chapter 1 and chapter 2. Do you see it? They're, they're bookends. At the beginning of the book, this is my servant Job. This is my man, right? And then all that stuff happens. We understand the purpose. We understand God's design. Job repents. We've come full circle. Now we're on the other end of the bookshelf. Here's the other bookend. This is my servant Job. Oh yeah, it's my servant Job. Twice, like at the beginning of the book. I'm going to double it. My servant Job. My servant Job. Four times. Twice as many at the beginning of the book to emphasize that Job is back where he needs to be. Job is in the right before God now. He's, he's where he needs to be. Trusting God faithful to God, God's servant. I love that. That's probably my favorite part of this whole thing. It is, I mean, if you were Job and God just got in your face, how would you feel? And how would you hear, how would you feel if, if in the shame and guilt, I mean, you're, in a, you're in a puddle on the ground like Job was a couple verses ago, to hear your God say, this is my man. This is my servant. He's my servant. This is my servant. It's my servant. Four times. We see God's kindness and grace and mercy on display again in Job's restoration. Let's keep going. Let's talk about Job's restoration now, okay? It says that God restored the fortunes of Job when he interceded for his friends. That's very interesting. Verse 10, it says, The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends, and the Lord increased all that Job had twofold. In uh, chapter 42, verse 10 there. God didn't restore the fortunes of Job the moment he repented. Why? Yep. There you go. That's not why we repent, right? We don't repent to get the benefits back. We don't repent to get our health or our wealth or our... We don't repent in order to get something. We repent because we've offended God. We've offended our Creator. And we need to humble ourselves and go to Him and seek His mercy and grace as a gracious God. So God, God doesn't... In fact, a lot of commentators are not happy at the ending because they think the ending that the story has kind of discredits the whole message of the book. But if you read it closely, it really doesn't. 
This book is about the grace of God, and we see the grace of God on display at the end of the book, probably more than any other part. So far from being a a getting what he deserved, this verse demonstrates that everything received is a gift of grace. God gives and takes away, and he does whatever he pleases. God didn't have to do this. And the timing of it is such that it wasn't in response to his repentance. Um, It was after he interceded for the friends that God, in his grace, decided to bless Job again. Um, And this is important that you see this. In, in this section here, Job is corrected, the friends are corrected, and Satan is corrected. Did you notice that? We've seen Job corrected. God came in and, and waxed eloquent for a couple of chapters, didn't he? And we see Job repenting when God comes to him. Now we see the friends rebuked. We see the friends corrected as as, uh, God comes to them and says, My wrath is kindled because you've not spoken to me what is right. All that theology, God says, wrong. You got it wrong. That's not what this was about at all. How is Satan corrected in this section? You guys are dancing around it. You guys have alluded to it already, but this is a good time to... Right, right. Here's what Satan said. Remember Satan's argument? Um, Satan says, um, God blesses you, and that's why you worship, right? God brings the benefits, and you worship. That's how it works. Remove the blessing, no worship. What we just saw demonstrated in Job's repentance is what? He worships first. And, and remember, what's the situation here? I'm just going to write ICU. Does that bring the picture back? He worships God in the ICU room. He worships God on the ash heap with the skin covered with boils, with the bugs and infection growing, with his eyes swollen shut, with the stench of the infections on his body, with the abandonment of his family and friends. He's in ICU. God rebukes him. Nothing has changed. He's still in the ICU room, and he says, I see now, I get it. He blesses God. He submits to him. He repents, and he trusts him again. Nothing has changed about his condition. He still thinks he's going to die. He still thinks this disease is going to kill him. He still thinks he's never going to see his family and friends again. And you know what? None of that matters now because he sees And he says, I'm going to worship you anyway, because you alone are worthy of my worship. And God delays. This is the genius of what God does. He delays it. He doesn't restore his fellowship or his his, um, blessing right then. He waits. He has a few more days in ICU, if you want to think of it like that. And God comes, he rebukes the friends, he sent... Can you picture that? Job's still in the ash heap. He's still covered with boils And here come the friends bringing their animals. Here you go, Job. Here you go. And we see, not not as a, a cause and result, but we see 
because we have a God of grace and mercy who does whatever he pleases. We see God's blessing. And that's so important that you see that. Does God bless his people? Yes. Is God gracious to his people? Absolutely. Does the Bible say, you know what? There are blessings for obedience to God. Does the Bible say that? Of course it does. But they come, they come from the hand of grace, not the hand of some cause and effect mechanistic vending machine God. Uh, Anderson, the commentator, puts it like this. These gifts at the end are gestures of grace, not rewards of virtue. And the timing of how God does that underscores that point. So Job is corrected. The friends are corrected. And now we see Satan corrected as he flees off the scene. Are you with me? This makes sense? You guys are quiet today. And this is uh, another interesting point here, too. He literally gets back double what he lost in livestock. We won't have to take the time to look there. But if you look at the numbers of what he is restored with in verse 12, the 14,000 sheep, the 6,000 camels, the 1,000 yoke of oxen, that's exactly double of what it says in chapter 1, verse 3. So God, God literally does what he says, that he's going to increase all that Job had twofold. He was restored to his family who blessed him with gifts and comforted him. So now we see his family coming, his brothers and sisters and his relatives. Remember, all those people had abandoned him in the midst of his trial. Now we see them come back. And it's almost like, it's almost like the story of Joseph. God uses the people that were unkind to him. Now these guys are just giving him money and giving him blessing and giving him all sorts of uh, compensation. There's one little verse here we need to talk about. Uh, my Bible says uh, they comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought on him. That's the first version of the NASB. Most of you have the second uh, edition of the New American Standard Bible, which I think actually says something like calamity or uh, adversities. Yeah, don't, don't get hung up on evil. Um, the Bible often uses the word evil in the sense of um, calamity, suffering, afflictions, adversity. Um, we see that in, in um, verses like Lamentations chapter 3. Evil just means calamity. But you know what that is? That, that's one little reminder at the end of the book. Uh, the narrator is speaking here, okay? One little reminder that this has all been God's doing. This is all, it, we've been focused on Satan. We've been focused on the friends. This is one more reminder that this has all been God's doing. This is a reminder, an affirmation of the sovereignty of God in suffering. He does whatever he's pleasing pleases. Nothing happens apart from his counsel and will. Now, this is interesting. He gets seven more sons and three more daughters. Um, I read more this week on this section of this deal than anything else. Because in the Old Testament, when names are given... It's almost always significant. That was the way the culture worked, and very often the Bible goes out of its way to say, you know, for example, when um, when Rachel was dying and she wanted to name her boy son of my sorrow. 
Ben Anoy, I think it's in the Hebrew. And, and, and what, did, uh, uh, what did her husband decide to, to call him? Ben Yamin, son of my right hand, right? Um, she was thinking, this is sad, I'm dying. And, and she died in childbirth, in the giving of birth of, of Benjamin. Um, uh, but Jacob said, no, um, we're going to name him the son of my right hand. And he saw that as a good... So names are significant. And, and not only... You notice the boys aren't given any press here? There's no ink about the boys here, which, again, would kind of go against that part of the culture. We've got three girls here. Jemima, Keziah, and Karen Hapuk. Um... What do they? What do they mean? Why? Why are they given here? What, what's the point of the names? Um, there's not universal agreement on this, but but here's what I think they mean. Jemima means day, and it emphasizes it emphasizes that Job has come out of this dark part of his life into the light where he now sees. He sees. He names her Day. The second girl, Keziah, refers to um, the bark of a tree called cassia. It was like cinnamon. They would grind the bark down and they would use it to make perfume. You say, well, why would he do that? Well, what has he been smelling for the last several months? The stench of his condition. Now his health is restored. And he names the second daughter Perfume, emphasizing or stressing that his physical health has been restored. And the third name, his third daughter, his little girl, Karen Hapuk, literally means horn of plenty. You know what a cornucopia is? You know what I'm talking about? He names her the horn of plenty, emphasizing the abundance of God's grace and blessing. Um, so it's interesting at the end. At the end, there, I, if the names are significant, which I think they are, that follows the pattern of Scripture. Um, the names emphasize his spiritual sight, his physical health, and the abundance of God's blessings. By the way, those three names also had the added benefit of being names for girls that emphasized their beauty which is what the next verse says. In all the land, no women were found so fair as Job's daughters, and their father gave them an inheritance amongst their brothers. Which was, and these guys may well have not been Jewish, but at least according to the Old Testament law, you didn't give an inheritance to daughters unless there were no sons. So that's an emphatic way of Job stressing um, his delight and joy in his children there. A couple more things here. Job's epitaph. Job lived double the length of days, 140 years. Moses in Psalm 90 said the normal length of days is 70. So Job lived literally double the length of days, 140 years. Um, if that's a reference to his whole lifespan, then that was his age when he died. It's possible that he lived another 140 years since this trial happened. It's hard to know which way to take it, but he lived a long time. And then the second thing we see is he saw four generations of his posterity. Um, my parents have a picture. Um, 
when I'm about that tall, I'm, I'm Eric's age. It's my great-grandfather, Palmer, my grandfather, my dad, and me. It's a cool picture. Um, you don't always get pictures like that because people don't always live long enough. Um, Job died an old man having seen four generations of his posterity. And this is what's interesting. The description, Job died an old man and full of days. There's only one other man in the whole Bible who is called, when he dies, uh, when it refers to him as full of days. You know who it is? It's David in, in First Chronicles. And the reference to being an old man in that, in that context is only used of two other men of faith, Abraham and Isaac. So you put those three together, what the Bible is doing is it's putting Job up next to the giants of the faith, Abraham, Isaac, and David. There's just, you can, hang on one second, there's one more thing here before we quit because we're almost out of time. Um, Will you think back to that little section? I, I didn't talk much about it. Job is, um, in fact, I'm going to write it up here. Job is unjustly accused by his friends, wasn't he? He was unjustly accused by his friends, right? Of some sin in his life and wrongdoing. He was considered to be punished by God, right? They considered that the affliction of his life was God's punishment. And yet he's called God's servant who intercedes for his accusers. He's the one who offers the atoning sacrifice for sin, which brings about their restoration. The result is that this man Job is blessed by God and he sees his posterity. Do you see it? Turn to Isaiah 53, please, and we'll close with this. I didn't see this till like last night, okay? But I'm glad I saw it. Isaiah 53, as you know, is the description of the servant. Verse 3, he was despised and forsaken of man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. We, uh, he was despised and we did not esteem him. Verse 4, surely our griefs he... Griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. See, they thought God was punishing him. And yet it says here, he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourgings we are healed. 
All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. The Lord was pleased, verse 10, to crush him, putting him to grief if he would render himself as a guilt offering. Now listen to this. If he was to do that, he will see his offspring, he will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper his hand. And as it says at the end here, by his knowledge, the righteous servant, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many as he will bear their iniquities. You know, reading the Old Testament, having the New Testament is a lot of fun. Because whoever wrote Job... He didn't, he didn't know Isaiah 53. He didn't know the gospel like we know it. But it's like in the, in the wisdom and knowledge of God, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, as this man is writing the book of Job, he concludes the book by putting all the pieces on the table for the Messiah. And in some sense, as Job is making atonement for his enemies, he is foreshadowing and picturing the suffering servant in that. Um, again, I don't think that was overt by the author. I don't think that's the main point. But again, in the genius and wisdom, uh, the Old Testament does this all the time. You, it puts these little hints and pieces, and you go, that sounds like the gospel! And you know what? It is the gospel. So God brings the book of Job to a close with hints and foreshadows and pictures of the Messiah who will, who will come to make atonement for sin. I'm sorry, I am way over time, and I had to finish that. Um, let me pray, and then if you have questions, we'll take those then, okay?